Welcome to GovIT, a monthly podcast series from TD Synex Public Sector, where we discuss the next generation of public sector IT solutions with the technology innovators driving the change. I'm your host, Tom Temin. Each month we explore a different technology, what it is, and how it can help public sector organizations achieve their modernization goals and accomplish their missions. In this episode, we're sitting down with Red Hat's Emergent Sales Specialist for Cloud Services, Andy Grimes, to discuss Red Hat on AWS public sector migration strategies. So the press is on for cloud restructuring. What does that exactly mean? And does that mean a decline in cloud services? Is there a migration to cloud native? Explain all those terms and how they interplay for us. Sure. It's definitely been uh, busy in the IT industry lately with a lot of uh, restructuring and IT jobs from on-prem. And most recently, even some of the hyperscalers have started to do some restructuring. A lot of that's based on massive hiring that they've done over the last uh, few years during COVID, especially with everyone remote. The result of that is there is some press and and some some interest in saying things are moving back on prem and in reality that's not the case most of the hyperscalers have actually massively hired over the last 3 years and a lot of the restructuring has been in the other parts of their business that ironically supported the cloud business sides so in you know for example amazon has eliminated a number of projects they were doing where in fact aws is still growing gangbusters and we've seen that from other hyperscalers as well but there's some pundits have started to say that is are people moving moving back on-prem. And that is definitely not the case. Uh, There was a McKinsey article recently that said they're expecting an increase of 60% in cloud spend across enterprise organizations, reaching a $3 trillion run rate in cloud by 2025, if I remember the article correctly. So there's definitely been some changes. And in fact, uh, one of the really interesting things is there's been some decline in growth in cloud which at the multi-billion dollar spend rates, a 20% growth is certainly nothing to, to, to shirk at. So cloud is still growing and customers are still investing heavily in cloud. However, they're doing, they are also using cloud for what it was meant for, which is, okay, demand is declining. I'm going to reduce my consumption. So if you've built your business properly, you have the ability to contract based on demand. So you're seeing some reduction in growth, which is really a function of cloud doing what it was supposed to do. So does that make sense so far? Yes, very much so. And I would say that with respect to the idea of going back on premise, I think what they're basically doing is creating maybe copies of cloud instances to put on the edge for when they need to compute locally. But that really means you need more cloud resources to be able to make sure that you have reliable images up in the cloud and places to make sure the data syncing happens and so forth after you've operated offline. Exactly. And there's been some interesting things where a lot of technical debt and and I, you know, I've been in the industry for quite a while and, and I worked for a storage vendor. I worked for a backup company as well. And what was very interesting was there was a net movement to cloud. And there's always this, hey, cloud is cheaper. It's it's not cheaper. It's about changing your business model to mapping usage to cost. It also happened to have a corollary benefit, a collateral benefit, in that it allowed you to rapidly retire technical debt while while breaking the organizational obstacles to change. So in some cases, I think a lot of companies have decided we're moving everything to cloud, not necessarily because it was cheaper, but because the groups that owned their network, their storage, their legacy big iron servers were just intractable to work with. And so they did move things to cloud. And once they got into cloud, they've refactored them into cloud native. And they started to look at cloud native running in cloud and went, wow, this is actually kind of expensive. Well, it is, you know, there there are aspects of it that are expensive. I could run this in my data center cheaper than I run in the cloud. 
Well, in fact, you can if you're already cloud native and you're out of your technical debt. You've now you know, created cloud native, horizontally scalable. Your data sets have been rationalized. You've done a lot of technical debt retirement. And now you do have an ability to stand up a data center. And I heard one of the AWS customers I worked with, I'm an ex-Amazonian, and um, one of the AWS customers I worked with was in a hilariously large Kubernetes environment, but I understood they built their own data center. And they were looking at, once they've used Kubernetes in the cloud, it's very easy to move that workload back to on-prem, but they're certainly not gonna go buy a traditional virtualization vendor. They're not gonna go buy traditional big iron and dedicated hardware. They're certainly not gonna set up, you know, for example, a mainframe, but if they're cloud native, they can use generic servers, generic storage, you know, they, they've basically broken their dependency on technical debt. And at that point, migrating back to on-prem for predictable workloads that they can they can manage through automation and using, you know, candidly open sure. source tools is one of the reasons I came here. So it, it's it really does prepare you for either approach. And to me, that's the real hybrid at that point. But yeah, and, and data, of course, which I used to be a storage guy, getting the data available on both sides, there, there's some unique technologies that can help with that as well. And that brings up a question that you touched on, and that is the difference between migrating a monolithic application that might already be on-prem to the cloud and modernizing it so that it becomes cloud native. And one of the things I had a fascinating conversation with a, an SVP of a very large financial services customer. Cloud people were on and it was actually pretty funny that the SVP of cloud for the, for the one of the companies was hilarious. He'd pretty frequently say in front of customers, yeah, all the people who sell on-prem gear at this company are going to be out of jobs in, in X number of months. And he, he was kind of a jerk and it was hilarious because, you know, the cloud people on the call on the customer side were like, yep, migrate. Why would you ever do hybrid? Why would you ever run traditional things in the cloud? And the SVP said, look, guys, I don't have time to refactor everything. I need to move traditional virtual machines, traditional storage constructs and everything into the cloud because I have a business problem to get out of a data center. And so you can see monolithic applications. You can see traditional monolithic style applications from hardware, et cetera. Those can make a, make sense to move to cloud, even though they don't necessarily run efficiently. But as a, a customer I was doing a POC with recently said, I'm going to use Rosa in the cloud because of the app modernization capabilities, the built-in tools to rapidly modernize so that when I move my monolithic application or my virtual machines or any other traditional constructs, once I've moved them to cloud the easiest way possible, I know it's more expensive. I know it's not efficient, but I've gotten my business problem out of the way. Now I can deploy my full arsenal of resources against those monolithic applications and, and move them into a horizontally scalable cloud native. That's the real key I've seen there is, is, is it's about refactoring in the most sensible way possible because it is hard to migrate to cloud and refactor simultaneously. What are the challenges then that you think government people, nonprofit people, they have this challenge of consumption and service enhancements. Service enhancements increase consumption, and they've always got to watch the clock running, so to speak, piling up the charges. It was interesting. I, I did a technical MBA a long time ago, and it was hilarious. I was actually taught by a marketing, for example, by a, a, a project manager, a marketing person from Raytheon. It's like, how do you market a bomb? And it was always one of those interesting concepts and in that government does have all the same concepts. And hilariously, one of the ones we did was nonprofits or service oriented. You don't measure a profit, but you measure the service consumption. And as a government agency, you are really about delivering a service back to your constituency, back to your consumers. And the more efficiently you can do that, the better. 
but you don't necessarily want to be a deep, deep, deep expert on do-it-yourself Kubernetes type of, of applications. So open source is a great way to start this process to break the dependencies on monolithic applications and you know those enterprise licensing agreements and things that tend to tend to trap you in technical debt. But you also need to make those skills easier to acquire for government so that they can focus on the application and the user experience and stay out of all the widgets. I worked uh, with a healthcare customer once and I, I went on site and it was hilarious. They had three data centers running synchronously replicated data. And I asked him, I'm like, what, what are you doing with this EHR system? It's like, oh, we, we're in all three data centers because our power systems are unreliable. And I went, good God, who built this? And where do they work now? And what does their resume look like? <laughs> because that was all it was, was somebody built their resume and went on to a new job. Government really can't do that, right? What you need to do is have something like the benefits of open source, but the benefits of an application platform like ROSA with everything built in you need. So you can hire developers fresh out of college who know how to be code ready to, to rapidly develop a service and deliver it. And we saw that in COVID. Suddenly everybody went remote. Actually, a, an analytics company here in Raleigh was hilarious. They took all their physical servers in the data center and converted them to VPN collectors because suddenly everybody was working from home and they had to shove all those applications in the cloud. But they needed app development platforms to help people rapidly cloud native and, and cloud ready and scalable. And we saw that in education institutions for remote remote teaching. Uh, we saw that in uh, remote government services being delivered, websites being stood up for you know departments of health, et cetera. So this ability to use open source to break that technical debt while simultaneously accelerating the ability to develop services and deliver them from cloud native in, in a hyperscaler where you can scale them, but also that that on-prem. And we've, we've seen that a huge adoption in cloud native in government services because of things like COVID demand. And Is in that... dealing with agencies and government entities and nonprofits, which are kind of like government, I guess, in many ways, how would you summarize their challenges in trying to do those things simultaneously? One, improve their service delivery to their publics, to their constituents, at the same time trying to tamp down that technical debt, which, as you say, can be expensive and have you operating on two fronts at once. A lot of it is you need to, the beautiful thing about open source tools, and I had a, a health institution I worked with once, and they're ironically in, in Pinehurst, North Carolina. So golfing capital of the world, and the, the director of IT there said, look, I need to adopt a technology. In his case, he was looking at an HCI technology. I can have one skill manage this rather than three. Despite the access to a golf course, he couldn't get people to move there. And so the local skills that he needed, whereas he's like, I can throw a brick down the street and hit three people who know this technology, but I have to actually put a very attractive financial offer in to bring in anybody who knows a monolithic architecture. And so he said, that's one of the things I love about open source. It's like we have Ansible and we have Kubernetes. They're both free. Everybody in college is using them because they're free. You can throw a brick down the street and find people who know open source tools and hit 20 people who know open source tools. So regardless of where government tends to be deliver services from distributed locations, they're in states and local governments, you need to be able to find people to do these new applications. And so using open source and developing cloud native, being able to run them in cloud or on-prem, uh, is really valuable to those organizations because they can start to reduce their technical debt in the applications, but also reduce their skill dependency. And they can go to a local community college and find people who are taking night class classes to know these technologies. So it can really free them up 
because developing a web application is actually a lot easier to get from a community college than it is to get an EMC storage array <laughs> or an IBM mainframe skill set. So that's what you typically see is, is, you know, cloud native allows you to scale up, down and sideways. You can also find people, which is which is also a big part of IT. Right. So the challenge then is in finding skills for open source and cloud native rather than trying to continue with the old systems, which are expensive and there's nobody to do it. Exactly. It's finding people who can deliver the services wherever you happen to be. That's one of the reasons why I really like open source is some of my friends were like, well, what's it like selling open source? I mean, there's always a free version. It's like I am always competing with a free version, but that's actually one of the most important things for government. You can always leave me. You can always go back to the free version, but that free version means there's lots and lots of people using it. And so the joke I always make is they're like, what's it like, you know, do you have developers? I'm like, we have everyone develop our product. Our problem is, is, you know, herding the cats to deliver a product that we make boring for the government entity. <laughs> so my job is to make open source boring for you so that you can consume it more easily. And the problem with Kubernetes, of course, is, is it's like how many different open source applications are there to deliver just a web application? Well, do you want to build that yourself and figure it out and do all the support stuff? Or do you want to use something like OpenShift or, or Rosa and AWS where everything's pre-built, pre-packaged? We give you that indemnification. So the person who knows how to do free that they learned in university has a very easy transition into that environment. But you as a customer all or, or government entity always have a road out. You can always go back to that free version so you won't repeat that technical debt in the future. Why don't we wrap with the question of AWS? and open source through Red Hat, what are the advantages there and how should people leverage it? Sure, a key thing to understand is that AWS and Red Hat have a very long relationship all the way back to, to 2008. So, so Amazon Linux is actually a derivative of Red Hat technologies or open source Linux. So there's been a very close partnership on open source technologies all along. And it, it, I did work at Amazon and it is a very, you know, kind of open source technology type of culture and that it is a build it yourself. Um, when you look at government, it's about having services that you can scale, evolve, and develop rapidly. Because of things like COVID, what we've seen is, is the days of legacy applications where the DMV, could, you, you waited in line for something, now there's alt web versions. And they're scaling web versions because suddenly everybody needs to be able to do it. So if you shift to open source tools on-prem, that ability to scale into the cloud, you can use cloud to develop it with AWS tools, you can migrate into the cloud, you can burst, you can basically develop in any way you wish. But as you, as you adopt open source tools in your data centers or in your distributed locations, particularly edge consumption, you can use ROSA in AWS, RHEL in AWS, Ansible in AWS, as well as the ROSA technologies to, to basically make your applications and your IT delivery portable. That really allows you to use your scaling in and out in cloud for exactly what it's used for, map demand to use. Andy Grimes is Emerging Sales Specialist for Cloud Services at Red Hat. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. For more information on Red Hat on AWS public sector migration strategies, please visit dlt.com forward slash Red Hat. You've been listening to GovIT from TD Synex Public Sector. We'll be back soon with more public sector IT content. I'm Tom Temin.